Back in 2007, the California Secretary of State, Deborah Bowen, did the unthinkable. She decertified all the digital voting systems in the state. That meant no one could use any of the digital systems until they had all been pen tested. In 2010, she was interviewed by O'Reilly Media. After commissioning a top-to-bottom review of the voting systems that we use in California and having uh, programmers and security experts from around the country, private and public sector, look at what we had and what we were doing, um, I, I, it became very clear that uh, we have a lot of uh, software that did not was not coded with security in mind, just wasn't wasn't there, and that a lot of the security is based on a concept called security by obscurity. Bowen's public inquiry revealed findings of multiple buffer overflows, software updates without authentication, and inadequate randomization of ballots so that valid secrecy could be compromised. Clearly, having individual vendors provide software was not working, so the state moved toward adopting open-source software. It also led to even more testing of election systems across the country. One of the premier security researchers that Bowen invited to California was J. Alex Halderman, then a professor at the University of Michigan. He went on to review other voting systems, such as a new one being developed in the nation's capital. In 2010, Washington, D.C. held a pilot of a new Internet voting system. They invited us and other members of the public to try to hack in. Within 48 hours of the start of the test, we had complete control over their voting servers and were able to change all the votes. We even rigged the system to play the Michigan fight song every time somebody voted. And as a result, Washington, D.C. decided not to use it in its upcoming election. So... Open source software and more testing. These might begin to solve the problems with individual voting machines. But what about the larger problem? I'm talking about the totality of the voting system, the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of it all. You know, the classic CIA triad in InfoSec. In 2016, Logan Lamb, a former Oak Ridge National Laboratory researcher, found over 6 million voter registration files exposed on a state-sponsored server at Kenneshaw State College in Georgia. He responsibly reported this to the Georgia Secretary of State, but the issue wasn't really addressed until after the 2016 election. Very strange, right? Well, that didn't keep him quiet. Here's Lamb appearing on Samantha Bee's Full Frontal, talking about his findings. I hacked into a voting machine in the state of Georgia. Oh my God. Yeah. All of the voting machines in the state of Georgia are managed by the Center for Election Systems at Kennesaw State. I did a quick little Google search and I ran across a really weird link. At that point, I wrote a little bit of code to download everything that I could from that website. There were PDFs of election day passwords that supervisors use to start and end elections. Can you tell me what the password was? Four digit pin. I have to put in 16 letters and digits to get into my Fresh Direct account. Kidding me? But it gets worse. Great. There were voter registration databases, which had full names, date of births, addresses, so a hacker could log into the online voter registration and change people's information. Changing the registration for citizens so they are unable to vote is probably the worst case scenario. You're basically saying that we can't trust the machines. We absolutely can't trust the machines. Good thing there are only 229,000 of these things currently being used in the United States. <laughs> it turns out Georgia wasn't alone. 
More individual states' voting systems were exposed and also addressable from the Internet. In the summer of 2018, during Roots, a program to teach kids hacking during the annual DEF CON conference in Las Vegas, Nevada, an 11-year-old hacker exploited an online imitation of the state of Florida's election site in a matter of minutes. And he wasn't alone. In Las Vegas, land of luck and legend, Let's get happy. a bunch of hackers rolled the dice to see if they could expose weaknesses in our elections. And they did. Some while playing a winning hand a hand with yellow fingernails, cartoons, and stuffed animals. I am 11 years old. I'm 11 years old, 7 years old, 11 years old, and 7 and a half. These kids managed to manipulate replicas of election night results pages in key battleground states from 2016. We're moving to Iowa. Pages built, organizers say, using actual vulnerabilities previously reported. Is this pretty easy for you? Yeah. So finding registration files and election systems exposed online, this, this after a decade of warning from security experts, from hackers and state governments, where does that leave us today? Fortunately, we're in a much better place today, yes. Unfortunately, there's still a lot of gaps. For example, only by focusing on the machine that captures your vote, that's only a part of the picture. Remember the six million voter records from Georgia just hanging out there on the internet or the imitation website that kids from DEF CON were able to get into. There's a much wider voting ecosystem that really starts the moment you first register to vote and continues well after you leave the polling booth. What happens if any of that information gets compromised and who is responsible for protecting that? Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations with the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm here to tell you to vote. You definitely should vote. But I also want to explore the many levels and complexities that are involved in securing that right, and how we need to think beyond just securing the ballot box itself, and how we may yet come to have digital voting in our future. We could create a digital voting system if we were willing to spend enough money to do it. Uh, when I look at nuclear submarines and the software that runs them, um, it's pretty, it has to be zero defect because lives are at risk. And, uh, but the cost is phenomenal. I mean, each line of code gets signed off by three different people. Uh, the, it takes a very long time, so it's not very flexible. Secretary Bowen is addressing an off-asked question. If elections are so critical, why don't state governments simply invest in a full-blown digital voting system? Among the many reasons, money. And with state budgets tight, she suggested back in 2010 that such an expense would be better spent to secure more of the voting process. I'd rather see us focus on a voter registration system that has uh, information goes from the Department of Motor Vehicles or wherever, the first time a citizen has contact with the government, mm. um, then that information goes into the voter registration database. If they're not yet 18, they regist are then registered automatically at 18. Voter registration, which, if you think about it, is just as critical. From the moment you register up through and beyond when you actually cast your ballot, all of that has to be secure. It's more difficult than one might think in terms of what are we trying to defend? We're trying to defend 
democracy at large, right? Like the whole process um, needs to be defended to be sure that, you know, someone can't unduly alter the outcome of an election. This is Dr. Jared DeMott. His company, VDA Labs, a pen testing service, has looked at tablet-based voter registration systems. To do so, he had to consider a threat model and what might be included. Yeah, there are uh, threat models that are appropriate, right? So when you think about what those might be, you think about the technical controls. um, And then there's obviously the other types of controls, policy, um, anti-tampering, you know, all of those kind of things that go into the whole of the election that aren't just technical in nature. So in terms of technical controls, you'd have things like following best practices. Don't make it easy for the attackers. Be sure that you've hardened and, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. But there's more. I'm thinking right off the top about PII. That would be a major concern. There's a fair amount of personal information collected when registering to vote. Name, address, driver's license. Yeah, you know, that's certainly part of it. Although I think... You know, we always think about this whole thing. We we thought about this whole thing from an end-to-end process, right? Because if, for example, you could check in, but then remove that you would check in from that device and come and vote again. I mean, there's a lot of problems associated with anything across this whole experience from, you know, from the voting side as far as you know, um, voter anonymity and the correctness and, you know, did your vote make it in? Did it get counted? Like, did you check in right? How many people voted? That, that whole process, it's, it's a part of that entire workflow. Let's drill down on that workflow a bit. On the one hand, the process as a whole is much more complicated. At the polls, you have to verify the person is eligible to vote. But on the other hand, you have to make sure that the vote itself is anonymous. So you somehow have to know and not know who the voter is at the same time. It's interesting because it's a fairly simple thing, right? You just want to go in, cast your vote, make sure it counted, make sure it didn't get changed, and make sure that your anonymity is uh, retained throughout that process. So like in theory, it's not, you know, um, it doesn't seem like it should be rocket science, but in reality, because of the distributed nature and all of the different pieces of that, you know, the decentralization of different counties, you know, collecting votes in different ways and the size and the scope of a, you know, like a national election, for example. Right. So Logan Lamb found that somebody could potentially alter someone's registration data so that they couldn't vote. And the kids at DEFCON Roots found that they could potentially go online and influence individual states' election results using common cross-site scripting attacks. There's layers and layers to the voting process itself. Yeah, the whole thing is is complicated, right? So, you know, if you're talking about an electronic voting system, even with just the check-in tablet or, or the actual voting app itself, whether it's a mobile app or if it's, you know, some sort of system there, a paper system or whatever it might be, somehow you have to be able to verify who people are um, in the same way that if you're familiar with public key um, cryptography, the idea behind how PKI works is not super complicated, but the getting and distributing and revoking keys and uh, you know verifying who someone is to have a key. And it's that process that's sort of similarly complicated. PKI, or public key infrastructure, works with two keys, a public key, which may be available on a website, and a private key, which is known only between the client and the server. 
And unless those two keys match, there's no encryption or decryption. It's the basis for a lot of our internet transactions today. It underpins our e-commerce. And yet, it's not always included in our voting system. There's problems more than just in the technical. Again, there's problems all across that decentralized nature of, you know, verifying somebody's image on a, on a you know, registered uh, driver's license credential or whatever it may be. But in terms of the technical controls, to get into that, we could talk about that a little bit in terms of these platforms, right? So whether it's a, if it's a, you know, voter check-in thing on a tablet, like oh, let's say it's a Windows 10 Surface or it's a, or it's the actual voting app, maybe that's a, Maybe that's on your mobile phone. Um, there's there's lots of different ways. Maybe that's a, you know an old paper counter. There's lots of different ways any of this could be done. But in terms of just one system, there's the actual operating system security, the platform security itself. You know, does the operating system opt in to best practices as laid out by a number of standards you can go and look at? Like, do they use BitLocker, TPM? Like, what if that voter registration tablet was lost? Does that mean somebody can just open it up and get access to all the voters in that district. There's all these sort of, you know, physical device and platform. So we can talk a lot about securing software, but what if it's running on an insecure operating system? That's Security 101. It still creates at least the possibility of some form of compromise. BitLocker and Trusted Platform Modules, or TPMs, are industry attempts to keep the software code on the device secure. What if the device also leaks the data in other ways? What if it uses Bluetooth or Wi-Fi to share its data with the central election server? How's that working? There's the network concerns, which you alluded to when you just mentioned Wi-Fi. Things like network encryption, certificate pinning. Is the, is this device domain joined or not? There's lots of different things on the network side that we could audit from a security, you know, red team auditing type perspective. And then... Thirdly, there's the AppSec portion, the actual app that's created, you know, um, does it have sort of some of the well-known OWASP top 10 vulnerabilities? Does it have, um, you know, how are credentials handled? Account security is a big thing, like the poll worker has one set of credential on a check-in device where the, you know, um, district admin or a technician account, there's different accounts for different types of people that may need to be part of that whole process. So in addition to authenticating the registered voter at the poll, there's the authentication of the individual poll workers. There's someone who logs into the device, and there's an admin who supersedes that access. There are thousands of poll sites, and all of those access controls have to be unique and secure and distributed. Things that we could, we could go through in terms of you know best practices around the platform, but certainly keeping the device up to date, uh, keeping the application up to date, how are those credentials handed out? Like, hopefully it's not just a set of hard-coded, like every poll worker in the nation would get the same set of creds or, you know, that whole distribution is a whole process in and of itself. Complicating things is this concept of individual mobile apps. These are personal voting apps that don't require you to physically go to the polls that you could potentially download from an app store and then run on your mobile device. Like if somebody's going to download this voting app on their phone, say, and they're going to say, okay, I'm Frank Smith. How do they do that? They just take a picture of a license or they take a selfie of themselves or how does that actually work? How do we verify and how do we make sure that, uh, you know, that individual, you know, is going to be then if it really is them privately protected as they cast their vote and they can't vote more than once and there's some way to you know, in a safe way, go back and retroactively 
verifying how they voted if there's a need to from a fraud prevention. So that whole process is sort of a little outside the normal scope of normal cybersecurity when we think about just application hacking and platform, you know, operating system hacking and network hacking and all, all those things are well understood. But there's a level of process on top of this that's, you know, a process of processes. So has anyone done a decent investigation of these digital apps? Yeah, I mean, the, the best uh, example of that is the research done by MIT and Trail of Bits as they looked at uh, the vote system. That uh, research was, was well done and uh, demonstrates the types of uh, vulnerabilities that can exist against a voting application, as well as highlights some of the things that the, the voting system is using, things like uh, newer technologies like blockchain, as well as not, not that biometrics is newer, but it's still really not broadly used in the security field because of many concerns. Votes mobile voting systems is just one example, and it's kind of an all-in-one voting system. Here's how Lit News described the system in 2018. That in order to register to vote, you have to take a picture of your government-issued ID and then upload that along with a video-style selfie of your face. And then Votes' software, their facial recognition software, will then match the identification and then give you a token to allow you to vote. It will then anonymize your vote as it assigns that token to the person that you voted for. Those tokens are then stored on an internal database They're calling it a blockchain. I think it's an effort to gain attention. It's not a true blockchain, a blockchain being a distributed ledger where not one particular party owns the system. In this case, votes owns the entire system. Mm, It's a single user blockchain, whatever you want to call it, an internal database. Okay, so photograph your government issued ID, take a selfie, and then it uses a token to capture and transmit your vote using internal blockchain or database. That all sounded good enough for the Secretary of State in West Virginia to try it out in the 2018 elections. A local West Virginia TV station had this to say. Researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, better known as MIT, say they have found security vulnerabilities with a cell phone voting app called Votes. This is the app used in West Virginia that allowed overseas military personnel to vote on the 2018 election. The Mountain State was the first in the nation to offer this ballot casting option. Now, however, the MIT researchers say, quote, we find that Votes has vulnerabilities that allow different kinds of adversaries to alter alter, stop, or expose a user's vote, and can potentially recover a user's secret ballot. Fortunately, the worst-case scenario didn't happen. The West Virginia Secretary of State, Mac Warner, told the local TV station that no votes were changed in an audit of the system. Absolutely, and, and everything matched uh, in the 2018 election, both in the primary and in the general. Uh, there were no hacks or no uh, changes of votes or anything like that, so I'm very confident in the system. What happened in West Virginia does remind us that elections in the United States are dependent on massively distributed systems. Each state and each territory in the U.S. gets to choose how they handle the election process. And not all of these devices, once they're in the field, get updated. J. Alex Halderman again. States have reviewed, there have been independent studies, many, many different kinds of U.S. voting machines. In every single case, The reviews concluded that there were vulnerabilities that could be used by attackers to spread malicious code into the machines, often via the removable media, and compromise votes. So um, the fact is, across the US, 
something like 41 states use election equipment that's more than 20 years old. Some states still use voting machines that were designed in the 1980s. These machines are often not receiving security updates. They're often not benefiting from the latest technologies. And the only safe assumption is that all of them have exploitable vulnerabilities. That speaks to management. How do you successfully manage what you have? But there's another problem. How do you successfully roll out a new digital voting system across, say, oh, all 254 counties in Texas? So we see kind of a hybrid system, you know, appearing and approaching over time, which is probably what I would say is likely to continue to happen over the next, you know, number of elections is where you have kind of this staged rollout where, you know, there's some counties are still maybe using older technologies, some are opting into newer technologies, there's probably going to be some hybrid model of different technologies going on for major elections is, is probably my guess on that, because of this need to continuously audit to your point. All the while, the security landscape keeps changing around us. I mean, think about all the updates you get on your laptop and your mobile device. If you're not good at updating your device or your app, then how can you really trust the app on your phone to vote? Well, yeah. So voting apps, like any other digital app or system, you know, again, that, that, that as you say, it's always there's new threats coming out. There's new technologies coming out. There's new ways of doing things. So, yes. These apps do suffer from, you know, the same types of vulnerabilities that any other um, app and system would suffer from. Um, and that could be things like you said, like unpatched platforms where somebody could get on a device or, you know, maybe even supply chain concerns where the vendor is hacked and there's malware preloaded on these devices. Or, you know, an app has a, a different type of vulnerability where, you know, a vote can be you can figure out who made what vote or change a vote. I mean, there's all kinds of different things that could happen that need to be continuously audited. So all that gets back to what Secretary of State Bowen suggested at the top of the episode. Does moving to open source make sense? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's really a question of the ages that across the other industries as well, not just in voting where we, we sort of wonder about that same thing. You know, is it, you know, shouldn't commercial companies be out you know, open sourcing things? Would that make them more secure? Um, and I would say there's kind of mixed reviews and results on that. I don't know that we've seen, you know, for example, there were well-known published bugs like Harpley that were in open source systems that didn't get caught right away. And so open sourcing doesn't necessarily make something totally more secure compared to commercial. And it does... You know, companies maybe would argue they have a right to keep their intellectual property secret and safe. But for a system like voting, I think it probably makes more sense than other industries to, if not open source, have more public scrutiny around the whole process so that the, the whole, you know, process of voting can have, a, have more um, rigor than perhaps, you know, normal gaming app or something like that, your voting app should certainly be created with a much higher level of integrity, considering the threat model of nation state actors that would and have, you know, been showing interest in tampering elections. Certainly there is a higher level of risk compared to any other type of normal app. Bowen is also on record saying that the gaming systems in Nevada are more rigorously tested and validated than most voting systems in the United States. The difference? Money. Casinos don't want to be scammed, so the Gaming Commission is constantly auditing their systems. But don't we want a free and fair election? 
shouldn't we be constantly auditing those voting machines? You know, it's still such a bleeding edge field that, yeah, there's going to be a continuing need to audit these systems because they could have any of the regular software security vulnerabilities. They could have any of the, you know, platform vulnerabilities. You know, if somebody can pop your phone or your pop, meaning exploit your box or your Windows 10 tablet or your phone, whatever it is, your iPad, whatever the, the system may be working on, could they get in and, and, and look at your vote or change your vote or cast it for you or all of those kind of concerns are going to be ongoing concerns. And it's again, it's not to say that we have to get it perfect. I don't think that any security practitioner ever has that expectation that a system would be 100% bulletproof. But at least knowing what the threat model is, what, you know, get rid of all the current vulnerabilities, make sure they opt into all of the best practices from a platform perspective, making sure that everything that can be done is being done, sort of the trust and then verify, making sure that we are verifying what's going on in real time, making sure that we do have, whether it's paper backups or some type of way to audit the system in an ongoing real time as well as retroactive to be sure that uh, if there is some suspicion about fraud that we can see what happens. Another complication, apart from the technology, there's policy. Perhaps that might be as critical as the technical controls themselves. I mean, what is the nirvana state that we're looking for in an election system? Ideally, how should we be voting? Yeah, so that's kind of in the policy realm. You know, first figure out what's the ideal voting system look like and then try to figure out how do we work toward that, right? So if we have certain goals about what is the perfect system, it's easy to use, it's accurate, it's resistant to DOS, resistant to tampering, there's fraud, if not fraud prevention, at least you know, fraud reduction to an acceptable level, you know, kind of figure out what's what's ideal and what can we work with and then kind of work backwards from that to figure out what should the policies be if we have, you know, counties and states, you know, and other types of areas that maybe aren't using a practice that's considered best practice anymore for, for voting. I think there's you know, likely to be um, some level of, of disagreement around folks as far as what that should be for this current, you know, for the 2020 presidential election. I think, you know, more of this sort of paper-based and that type of voting is probably a little bit more appropriate because these systems have not really been totally proved out yet. I don't think they've had a sufficient level of rollout and testing and use to really be a fully digital, fully e-voting situation yet, but it's, you know, we could get there. We could, it's just going to take a little bit of work as it always does. So there's the hanging Chad problem of paper ballots used in the 2000 presidential election in Florida. And then there's the possibility of nation states altering or changing votes electronically in 2016. In 2020, we're stuck in the middle of these two extremes. We'll need to find a way forward for all this to work. There's challenges either way, right? With that, you know, showing up personally, maybe and having a paper record, that type of thing, you know, or even if there's a paper record with a mail-in, maybe that's not a perfect process if somebody could forge a license. I mean, so you get to this question where, you know, what's really the best practice and what's an acceptable uh, level of reliability in the system to make sure an election wasn't um unduly changing. I don't, so it's interesting. I'll say this about, you know, cybersecurity, right? It's, you can't, uh, we can demonstrate provably with an exploit if a system's insecure, 
But we can never truly prove that a system is secure because we can't find or think of a way to currently exploit something. I think we will have electronic means of voting, and it might be as simple as downloading an official app onto your mobile device. We'll even come to think of it as being normal. Someday. For now, at least, we're starting to ask the right questions around confidentiality, integrity, and availability. And that's great. We're already seeing improvements in the methods we have available, and that's important. But when will voting systems be secure enough? I don't think anyone knows for sure. I keep thinking of that famous InfoSec quote from Futurama, Season 4, Episode 8. When you do things right, people won't be sure you've done anything at all. Hey, before you go, remember to subscribe to The Hacker Mind and never miss another episode. You can find us on Google, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, so many different platforms. Check us out. For The Hacker Mind, I'm Les Bender and more fry, Robert Vermosi.